So much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai. What does the future of AI look like? While we all know that artificial intelligence will change business forever, how will this happen? Those leading and involved in businesses pushing the boundaries of AI discuss in this session from Advertising Week Europe 2022. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, thanks everybody for coming. I think this is going to be a super interesting conversation. We're talking about artificial intelligence and this is a very theoretical concept for a lot of people or a magical concept. Artificial intelligence can do amazing things. It can transform industries, but it also has limitations and shortcomings. So that's something I hope that we can discuss in our panel, our esteemed panel. Um, and we're just going to dive right in with you guys. Um, maybe we can just start, instead of introducing yourselves and your companies, talk a little bit about how you're actually using AI in your businesses, if you can. Maybe we just start with Dudley. Okay, drop that one on me. Okay. Um, so the two businesses, one's called the Virtual Influencer Agency. We make uh, Web 3.0 and avatars, so integration strategies uh, for companies like the wonderful MasterCard over there. Yay! Uh, and uh, we use AI to understand consumers more than anything else and also figure out what types of content, what types of avatars or characters the consumer would actually respond to. Um, that's one side of it. And the other side at Live and Breathe, the consumer intelligence platform, we have Data Kinetics. It's more about bringing a whole bunch of different consumers and finding them and finding the patterns so that we can segment them and understand if you want to sell a fizzy drink, these are the kinds of words, images and symbols that appeal to that particular segment. So on both sides, it's mainly about understanding through lots of data and finding patterns. That's great. Thanks, Mari. Yeah, hi, I'm Mari Oller, founder and CEO of Snackable AI. So Snackable uses AI to basically um, identify important moments within audio video recordings. And uh, why it's relevant today is, of course, because especially since the pandemic, the proliferation of video has been just tremendous. It's become the number one communication method. It's made all of us into creators. I mean, we are creating content right now at the session, which is being recorded. So the question is, how do you get through all that content? And how do you do that in a, at a time when we are drowning in content, we have just, we are overwhelmed, we're spending, you know, hours upon hours on Zoom every day. So what we do with AI at Snackable is we basically create assets and tools to break that content down. So generate automatic chapters, highlight clips, which we call snacks, hence Snackable, um, but tag everything and also make um, audio video deeply searchable. So it has really, I would say, three benefits. Number one, it really improves workflows for creatives, for marketers, really anybody in the organization. It allows people in the organization to be creative, to actually generate content for sharing with audiences, and it makes content more kind of snackable, shorter form, digestible, targeted for your target audiences. Okay, that's great. And uh, Simi? Hi, I'm Simi Lindgren, founder and CEO of Beauty, and we use AI to match people to the right beauty products. So. Basically, I struggled to find the right beauty products, you know, products that worked based on my genetics, my lifestyle, whether I was breastfeeding or not, 
pregnant or not, um, whether I lived in London or not. And I wanted to use a technology to kind of automate that kind of decision making so I didn't have to stand in a shopping aisle and wonder which one works for me. So we created UT and we use machine learning and deep learning to match people to products based on their lifestyle, their environment, their genetics, their preferences, um, down to kind of ingredients to find out which formulation works for them so we can reduce this incredible waste um, that goes on in the beauty industry. Yeah, those are great. Thanks so much for keeping your answers snackable. Um, <laughs> so just to, to move on, I remember 10 years ago, everybody was about, it's all about data. Get as much data as you can. Data is the new oil, et cetera. Um, and then it was, let's make sense of the data. And that's what I think people talk about when they talk about using AI. And that's kind of what I got from hearing, from listening to all of you, that you are taking, whether it's audio, visual data, or um, information about consumers and drawing conclusions about that. Mm. What I'd love to ask you next is how do you measure the success of your AI and your algorithms in doing that? Um, maybe let's just start with Mari, because you're actually yeah. dealing with language, yeah. um, parsing that through, summarizing it, who goes in and decides, yep, the algorithm was accurate, or no, they didn't do a very good job? Yeah, so ultimately it still comes down to humans. So we do a lot of human annotation in-house, and when you have video content, there's always subjectivity. So it's always, um, you know, so an editor might say, well, this is not exactly what I would take from this audio, like, actually, I like this other part better. So you need to kind of understand how to work with the AI. So when it comes to annotation, some of the things that we do to kind of get to the ground truth is we get multiple people, for example, to annotate the same video. And we measure the overlap to really give more than one opinion to the, to the contents of the file. And what, what I find actually really fascinating is that the AI tends to be very quadratic. It's kind of a machine, right? A human might say, well, you know, they made a great joke over here. I'm going to just pick that as a snack, and it's really going to go for my audience. And the AI says, well, I've analyzed it, everything. Here's a density of conversation, and here's a good snack for you. So it's also like a very much like a human-machine collaboration at the end of the day as well. So it's not one or the other. It's like I think you can get really powerful com results by combining the two together. Um, Dudley, do you also have uh, humans in the loop? Is, yeah, 100 percent. Jargon. Yeah. 100 percent. And to figure out if it's working or not for the consumer intelligence platform, it's about performance. So last time you ran a campaign, this is what it did, and stick the consumer intelligence platform data kinetics in it. What's the performance now? And if it's improving, then it's working. Um, but and here's the important bit. In the end, the human makes the decision about the content and the campaign, and that's normally a creative director you know, for, for what we're doing. So <laughs> the insights that the AI comes up with, sometimes they're really, really dumb, and they <laughs> really don't work. Um, and that's the thing. You've got to be a human and look at it and say, just because it's found this pattern, it does not mean that you should be using it or marketing using that particular pattern. So the human is absolutely 100% important, and I think it's really important to know that at the moment, AI is still really stupid, hmm. um, <laughs> and you need humans to understand it. Don't believe it's going to take over the world because it's not. Mm. Yeah. Speaking from experience, and Simi, have you found that as well? Yeah, I mean, we, I guess we call it like artificial augmented intelligence. Mm. Yeah. In the sense that we have to have domain experts because we're essentially automating estheticians, dermatologists, trichologists by saying these are the products for you, right? So when we're annotating and labeling data, we can't say, well, someone say that this is a fine line and a wrinkle and it looks like that on 
you know, someone who was a phototype one and then like that on someone who's phototype six, we need domain experts to be able to understand and label that data so that the algorithm, the model can understand that's what fine lines and wrinkles or acne or dry scalp looks like on these various different types of people um, so that we can make accurate recommendations. And then we also leverage um, reinforcement learning because once you know, UT is doing the right thing. We mm -hmm. want to reward her. We want to tell her, keep doing that, that good thing that you're doing. Otherwise, you know, how do you improve and ensure that we're, we're driving the, mod the model to optimum performance? So, yeah. I think there must be quite a bit of resistance among companies who use AI to be open about the humans that they're using. I mean, as a journalist, I get a ton of press releases from companies who are using AI to do this and using AI to do that, and they never mention these humans <laughs> yeah. who are actually babysitting the algorithms. Yeah. Um, do you think companies should be more open about this? And if I could just quit tag on another question. Um, you know, is it ultimately driving up costs for you to have to hire these people to do this work? Um, I mean, we're, a, we're pre seeds each stage startup, so, you know, we operate incredibly leanly and we've automated lots with the use of AI, but as I said, because it's beauty and we're recommending products to people, don't want them to have adverse reactions and, and we've spent so much time getting to a point where we've had to anthropomorphize this AI and make it very human-like, that we need to have humans in the loop to drive that. We're quite open about the fact that we have domain experts, and I think it goes to the credibility and trust, because if you just say AI is making these recommendations, I think consumers will be like, uh, heck no. Mm. Um, you know, like, there's a robot making a decision, it's not even a robot. So I think, you know, for us, it's, it's quite important to be quite um, open and transparent about the fact that humans are in the loop. Um, yeah, yeah um, Dudley and, and Mari, what about the cost of all these humans that you need to do this work? Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, the first thing is, um, certainly with, with all of our systems, you have to teach them, because <laughs> you're creating something new, and you're creating a new system. So, you know, everybody we get in, I have to teach them. This is how it works. So there's a cost, a lot of time involved in showing people how you're the way you're using AI, how to use it effectively. And that takes time. It takes you know, six months before they're good, I'd say nine months before they're really good, and a year before they're independent. So that's the real cost. But then once you've taught them, and they can use the AI properly, and they can throw away the junk and bring in the good stuff, then that's when you start to see huge improvements in performance, because you're saving a lot of time, but you do have to teach people new skills. Have you reached that point yet, where it's paying for itself? <laughs> yeah, I'd say we're at the crossroads. You know, at the moment, um, but it's 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 very very close. I just wish you know, you, maintaining turnover of staff can be really difficult, particularly yeah. when you're exciting places because there's also some other exciting startup with tons of money throwing them at your staff that you've just <laughs> trained. Mm. Um, actually, Mari, if I could just um, put a spin on that question, where do you find the people that do this work? I mean, it's not something, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird kind of job, like domain expert. Is that a new kind of job category that's emerging, labeling algorithms, training algorithms, and, and how do you hire these people? 100% that we found a very fancy name for it. We call it the AI coach, model AI coach. coach. AI okay. model coach. But it, um, I think in, like, in all of these instances, we're, we're looking for efficiencies. And the use cases are different, and the models are different, and also the mechanism behind that is different. So in our case, it is, it is absolutely the situation where we're dealing with semantics, we're dealing with linguistics, 
We're asking people who actually care about the content. Look, how would you break this down? How, how would you find what's interesting? So I don't know how many of you have seen this uh, US show called Silicon Valley, but they, uh, they, they build this uh, AI. It's like, is it hot dog or not hot dog? So it's like very simple labeling. Is it hot dog? Is it not hot dog? Well, you can't do that often. So you actually have a lot more sophistication with some of those AI tasks. Like in our case, it's a linguistics and it's actually sophistication around the content, which for our customers, we want it to be meaningful. We want it to be accurate. You know, so we want it to be usable. Uh, but it turns out we don't need absolutely massive data sets. Like we don't need tens of thousands of hours for that. You'd need some of that, for example, for some of the other tasks. So and then you can, you can find efficiencies in some of it where you are actually able to then, like Simi said, use some of those you know, reinforcement models or ways in you, you can teach the AI to teach itself. Mm -hmm. So there's ways in which that automation can happen so that your, co your human costs do not become so exorbitant. But are you doing that now? Are you at the point now where your AI using one model can train the other model and you don't need the humans anymore? Or is that in the future for you? We still use the few humans. I think it's absolutely necessary to use the humans because I think the other point is that there's been justifiably so a lot of enthusiasm about some of the new AI developments. So, for example, in natural language processing, you know, everybody talks about GPT-3. Yeah. So what GPT-3 has done is basically shown that you can create like human quality um, summaries, human quality text. And can you just explain for people that don't know what GPT-3 is? Um, basically, it's the open source. It's open source model, but yeah. it's basically it's trained on, you know, gazillions of data and it basically allows you to work with it essentially like a black box. You can put your data in and it basically generates, you know, summaries for you and it generates text for you and is able to do a lot of things that we weren't able to, you know, we weren't able to do before. And this was developed by OpenAI. OpenAI, exactly. Founded by Elon Musk. And, and lots of companies are using GPT-3, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we tried it. And it led exactly to the situation. It was great 80% of the time and those 20 other percent of the time, it failed utterly. So if you've ever seen any of this like AI-generated movie scripts when it's just complete gibberish, we got a lot of that. It was fascinating. It's actually really interesting to see that, but it actually shows you that you have to have a human who also looks through those results. You can't just take that black box and just deploy it because inaccuracy is just one of those things Like it can come up. Bias and a lot of things can happen if you're not paying attention kind of what model you use, especially when the model is such a black box and you can't quite see inside to see the mechanism by which the decisions are being made. Mm. Um, on that point, um, Simi, you said something earlier about how consumers, if they knew that an AI was making this decision, they'd be like, no, thank you. Mm. Um, but I do wonder if that's, if, if consumers are just starting to realize that now. I feel like five, 10 years ago, there was this sense that AI was so great and was really um, magical. And now it seems like the reality is starting to hit home about some of these mistakes and errors, um, like the 20% um, that it can make. Um, what do you do in your businesses when your models do make errors? How do you go in and, and fix them? Do you, do you get an engineer to kind of reprogram the model or rewrite it? Or do you have to change all that data that it's been used to train on? Maybe Simi? I mean, our data science machine learning team is, is four people, including myself. Mm. So, you know, if our models are making mistakes, um, and we're at 96% accuracy now when we're recommending beauty products, but at the beginning, um, I think what I realized was that we needed to think about how we were training. So the training data set, what does that look like? And because it's beauty, and most of what we're doing is recommending beauty products to people that's rooted in science. So it's ingredient-based recommendations. We're not using um, 
content or collaborative filtering to do anything like that. We, you know, our IP is the fact that we've we've used science to do this. So I realized very early on that actually the more balanced and diverse our data set was, mm -hmm. um, the better the recommendations and, and the more accurate UT could be. And by the way, how do you dis how do you know that the recommendation is accurate? How do you get to that 96% figure? I mean, now we're at the point where, you know, how I talked about earlier on with the reinforcement learning, like we ha our marketplace ended up being kind of like our sandbox, our environment to kind of test whether UT was working. And we saw the increased average order value. So customers okay. were coming back. You know, first of all, I mean, we didn't do any advertising. So zero was spent on customer acquisition costs and customers were coming. The brands aren't well known, they're indie brands, but they were spending 113 pounds on two products, mm. buying every 89 days. The conversion rate was about 14%, you know, from UT compared to, I think it's about 28 to 3.3%. So your so that's how you measure the success of your recommendation okay. engine. Conversion rates are going up, sales are going up. Exactly, and customers okay. are buying the same thing again. We we retained about seventy six percent of our initial cohort, and those numbers are, are, are similar. So you know when you're seeing that, when we see that kind of those success metrics, and we're comparing it to every other kind of brand, e commerce retailer, all the rest of it, this is down to UT, and they're buying the same things again, and then they're increasing their spend and, and trusting UT, or the recommendations UT is making. Mm. Let, me, let me move that question to, uh, to Dudley. So when your models make mistakes, how do you go in and fix them? What do you do? Yeah, they always make mistakes. So that's what, yeah, basically what I was saying before. And I, don't, I think it's, we're decades away from them not making mistakes. You know, you decades? Always, yeah, really? yeah, completely. You're always going to need humans because the main reason is that humans change. <laughs> you know, we're not static. Mm -hmm. A training model from the past is not a training model for the future. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something a lot of people don't understand. Uh, there is no sentience in AI. It's not going to realise that something has changed unless you give it that information. And then that new information you give it, you have to review and there'll be errors in it. <laughs> so for us, we make sure that everything before it goes out um, is looked at and is checked properly by humans. And we must have, I mean, what's becoming interesting now, though, is that after maybe two or three hundred different consumer segmentations and millions of consumers that we've brought in, what's starting to become fascinating is that, and each one is a bespoke project, we're starting to see human archetypes come out. Mm -hmm. And we're doing stuff all over the world, India and you name it, we're doing it. And we're starting to find that psychologically humans are starting to fit into these archetypes. What, what do you mean by human archetypes? Well, so one of the key things that we're trying to do is we use language to understand somebody's psychometrics. So if I am someone who is... Um, uh, conscientious, then the kinds of languages, the kind of words and the kind of images I respond to are words and images which make me think that that product or service is going to make the world a better place because I'm conscientious. If on the other hand I'm neurotic, I have fear of missing out and so I want to, uh, words I respond to is this is happening and you need to be in it. And what we're finding is that those psychometric characters, there's about 12 of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that is not something we expected, that we never would have found without the machine, because it keeps on sending back this information and overlaying and finding these patterns. So that's where the genius of it comes in, but we will always have to check it, and it mm -hmm. will always make mistakes. Okay. And Mari? Yeah, I mean, we're always monitoring and then doing that in different ways. So we have an ongoing internal process to sample the data and be able to kind of do human evaluation on that data. 
We also get a lot of customer feedback, whether that's qualitative or actually users using our own web interface. And so we're looking at how people consume that content, how they edit it, how they kind of export it. Like, so it's basically just done on a, an anonymized level, but just looking at um, patterns in, that emerge from, from doing so. And uh, again, like, like Dudley said, that after a while you start, you start seeing patterns. So once you see patterns, it's, it's much easier to fix errors because you don't know if it's a one-off or if it's like something more kind of foundational or systematic. So um, we, we basically have a process built to do this on an ongoing basis. Okay. Now, um, when it comes to building AI models, one thing I've heard from speaking to people in the industry is that everybody thinks that the, all the hard work is in building the model, but actually so much of it is in just getting the data, cleaning it up and yeah. training it. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that works? Like, really just break it down for us. Where do you get this data to build this AI model? Because it seems that that's the most important part, right? Um, Samit, you want to start? I mean, in the beginning, I think because we couldn't rely on all the data out there because we were talking about skin tones and the data that was available, the publicly available data was, was very um, biased to kind of Eurocentric and, and Caucasian skin tones. So, And can you just say what kind of data was available? Like, what was that? Was it from a university or where would you get that yeah, data? Yeah, so sets? university, you could scrape the internet, things okay. like that. So that was, you know, that's, well, there's libraries out there. There's, there's various different places. Um, but what I did was I crowdsourced data. Hmm. And I'm from a very diverse household anyway. Um, and then we began creating data. So synthetic data using GANs. So generative wow. adversarial networks to actually create synthetic data. And I think that really helped us in terms of filling in the blanks in terms of ensuring that the data was complete and as balanced and diverse as we wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess everyone's familiar with GANs from like deep fakes. And but just to break that down, normally a training set would have a whole bunch of pictures of faces, right? 100%. But the ones that you found online were not diverse enough. So you yeah. used AI to create fake faces to make the data sets more diverse? Yeah, create mm -hmm. fake faces with different concerns because we need to be able to identify acne on up to 7,000 different skin tones mm. and rosacea and we're using computer vision. So if a, a customer or user is taking a picture and they're asking UT, like, what's going on with my face? And, and we're only able to, well, first of all, we're not able to see them, mm. or second, we're not able to detect it. How are we able to make those recommendations? Um, so, yeah, we, we created synthetic data and we did that across many different metrics that we were hoping. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's an incredibly clever idea. And how, can you just say how many faces you made? Or is that proprietary? A lot. A lot, okay. <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot. In, in, in the thousands? No, a lot more than that. A like lot more. seven figures. Seven figures, so in the millions. So this is the thing, like when making an accurate model, you need a ton of data. Um, Dudley, how about yourself? Where are you getting your data from? Uh, are you, yeah. are you so making it with you, GANs no, too? No. <laughs> well, actually, we, did, we were trying to make a race-neutral avatar, and so we came across exactly the same problem that Simi came across, where all the data sets that were out there were heavily biased, and we ended up going to create to use a, a GAN company to create <laughs> our own data set. Um, 
but the data sets for the consumer intelligence platform, you used a word before which people go, ah, which is scraping. <laughs> but yeah, we scrape a lot. Um, and you're allowed to do it so long as it's anonymized. And so we think the future, when we started building data kinetics three years ago, it was with the understanding that a cookie-less future was coming in, yeah. that everything was going to become anonymized. So that was the foundation we started on. So we use identity resolution software to use everything from Facebook, Instagram, traditional media, um, review sites to, to, to ensure it's all the same person, that we can then create a map of that individual and understand everything from their interests, the images they like, what their psychology is, but it's all anonymized and it's just a number. They don't have a name, just a, a number? Just a number, okay. that's it. We, we don't want a name, you know, what mm -hmm. we're trying to do is help the brands understand what the category's like, you know, how they, how they should communicate to that category. You don't need a name for that or, or an email address. So you're getting your, you're creating your own data set yep. by scraping. Yep. Shouldn't say that word, but it, it's Well, it's your, all <laughs> legitimate APIs that you yeah. buy, but you name it, you can get the information out there. Okay. And, and Mari, you're dealing with language. I mean, there's just yeah. like a ton of text. Did you use GPT-3 or their data set or where, where did you get all the, your data from? So we're beneficiaries of two things. One is that we were, one, because everybody's now communicating with video, so it's been just like an explosion of content. Mm. And so there is a lot of publicly available data, whether this is YouTube and podcasts and a lot of you know, um, data that you can just you know, basically have free access to. So we've done a lot of scraping. Everybody does who can, I think, does that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've um, also created our own data sets. So it's, again, a lot more limited. It's a lot more kind of manual. It's a lot more resource intensive. But I think it gives you, you need to do that if you have a very specific use case. Because you have the data sets out there, but they're still not going to be perfect. So you need to, yes, you need to clean them. You need to standardize them. But even if you do that, your own use case might still be different from what is out there. So you still need like your own source of truth for training to measurement so that you're able to really kind of stay close to your own source of truth on that. Yeah, it's kind of like making it bespoke for your own purpose, yeah, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, so if I could just on this on this point about the data aspect of building AI, um, so designing the algorithm versus getting all the data and cleaning it up, if you could put like a proportion for the data of all the work, what would the what would the figure be if each of you could just give your figure? Say Simi? Sorry, I always start with you. Doing the math. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to, to split it. Guesstimate. Okay, so we don't collect as much as we used to. So creating data, I'd say about thirty-five to forty percent. Thirty-five to forty percent? Training the models. <laughs> That's all the time. So I'd like to say it's 100% of the time, yeah. but there's not 100% of the time. Um, oh, God. It's a big proportion. Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, Mari? It shifts over time. So initially, you are very much trying to get the right data and you clean it and to make it work for your purpose. And I think as the time goes, like as the time evolves, you're spending more time on the models. So I would say for us, it's probably. A, you know, it used to be more 50-50, I would say 30-70 in favor of the model refinement training okay. kind of advancement of that. Okay. And Dudley? Yeah, I think about 25% bringing it in, but then 75 to 175 is interrogating it. <laughs> training the data, training it, cleaning it up. understand it, cleaning it up, sending it back again, bringing it back in, yeah. Okay. Um, we've just got time for one more question for each of you, which is um, the, look into the future. 
And so you know what AI can do for you now, uh, you know what it can't do for you. What do you hope machine learning and AI algorithms um, can do for your business, say, in the next 10 years? Um, let's start with Dudley. Ah, well, I'm going to let you in on my new business then. <laughs> so I, I kind of think in the future where I'd love this all to go, all this information we're beginning to get about understanding people and having a strong belief in um, data privacy, I would love it if we could get to the point where everyone here gives all of their data to a sealed unit. And that sealed unit... Um, understands everything about you, the film you like, the music you like, the food you like, the car you like, everything, because you've given it, but you own it. It's your, it's your data. And then we create an avatar on top of that, <laughs> which then becomes your friend and does everything for you. It helps tell you where your new car is that you want to buy. It helps tell you what TV's good. It helps tell you to ignore that album because you're not going to like it. That's where, 10 years from now, all this work that we're doing on segmentation and audience analysis on one side and all the work we're doing on avatar creation and Web 3.0 on the other side, that's where I could see it converging. So it would be like a digital assistant but like a mirror of me. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and oh, all no, that data so. that you have out there that I can scrape, <laughs> yeah. you're actually using it for you and not for someone else. Okay, cool. Yeah. Mari? I'd like to uh, maybe answer that question from the benefit of the people, the customers that we're, we're serving today and how we want that to evolve. So I think that's really three things. So it's number one is really about workflow optimization. So even, you know, speaking from the context of this conference, <clears throat> it will be on the, on the marketing and content teams from, from this conference to take all the recordings and make them accessible for all of you. So you can go and you can easily find exactly what you need and you can do that in seconds as opposed to spending hours trying to watch content on demand. So it's basically making it possible for everybody to be able to produce that content in a way that is, well, snackable or it's at least you know, digestible in small pieces. And also for, from the end user perspective, being able to truly bring like visibility and searchability into this vast audio video libraries that we're just continuing to add more to. Like enterprise video market is growing 20% a year. Mm. It's going to be 50 billion by 2027. That's okay. huge. So basically refining what you have and making it even better. Exactly, uh, and then bringing it to the whole organization. So beyond just, you know, ability to, you know, produce and promote content, there's also team efficiency and, and transparency. Because okay. now we live in such a hybrid world, so nobody's in the same room anymore. So there's asynchronous work, there's you know, information asymmetry. So if you're able to put all that information into the same repository and democratize access to that, you also have a lot better kind of workforce efficiency and better collaboration with teams, and I think also like better mental, mental health for employees. Okay. And Simi, final thoughts? Where you'd love AI to take your company in the future, what you'd love for it to be able to do for you? I think for us it's just most important that I think beauty consumers are empowered by their products and, and they feel good. And we want to help brands and retailers really understand who their consumers are. Um, we've already proven that you know, we can increase basket size and boost loyalty and, and drive conversions. And that's just by really understanding who the customer is throughout their, their whole journey mm -hmm. from kind of like, well, above 18 and onwards mm -hmm. all the way through to, mm -hmm. to the end. Um, end of their lives. So I think that's the most important thing for us, just help our customers find the right products, but our B2B customers get to know their customers in a real way so we can reduce waste. Okay. 
That's great. So again, getting to know your customers even better, making the model more accurate and refined. Hyper-personalization. that's the buzzword. Yeah. Okay, so on that note, thank you so much, everybody, for, uh, for your wonderful answers and for enlightening our audience. And thanks to our audience for listening. That's it from us. Thanks for listening to Uncommon Thinking, a podcast from Advertising Week. For more content like this and to learn about Advertising Week's global events for the advertising, marketing, and technology industries, visit www.advertisingweek.com. Chaptering and other structural elements for this podcast are powered by Snackable AI. With the ability to unify all content in one place, have AI distill the best insights instantaneously, and share them seamlessly, businesses on Snackable create more relevant value for their audiences faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.